I'm Dr. Mila Brujic. I'm joined today with Dr. Stephen Ferrucci, where we're going to be talking about those are some tight jeans on the OI show. Dr. Stephen Ferrucci, welcome back. Steve, um, if you could, just for the audience, please just give a little bit of a background on yourself, uh, your practice setting, and also to kind of your areas of passion in optometry. Sure. I'd love to. And thanks for having me again, Mile. Um, So my name is Dr. Steve Ferrucci. I'm the chief of optometry at the Sepulveda VA, which is one of the three VAs we have out here in, uh, in Los Angeles. I've been here for about 22 years now. Um, also, I'm a professor at the Southern California College of Optometry in Fullerton, California. And uh, yeah, I dabble in a lot of things, but really my, my true passion is, is posterior pole disease, uh, retinal disease, unlike some of my anterior seg friends that I, that I know and care about so greatly. Um, but I do more retina care. And, and really my passion right now is, is with, with AMD uh, as well as diabetic retinopathy. You know, what we can do to, to prevent it from, from you know, getting worse, uh, how we can treat it, how we can help our patients that have it and, and that sort of thing. It's great. Well, Steve, we're going to jump into that in just a second, but you have to share with the audience exactly what's so special about your hospital, in particular, the way it relates to a pretty, pretty popular TV show that we're all pretty familiar with. Yeah. So, so not so much now, but in the early days, it served as a backdrop for uh, Grey's Anatomy. And in the first couple of years, they did all the exterior shots at, uh, at Grey's Anatomy. So, um, you know, and I've met many of the, the actors on Grey's Anatomy. And uh, funny story, they, they, you know, after they, they were filming for a couple months and they decided they were going to invite all the doctors and, and staff for a, a lunch that they were going to pay for. And they showed us the pilot of Grey's Anatomy. So I'm sitting there watching it with a buddy of mine who's a primary care doctor and I watched about 15 minutes and I leaned over to him. I said, this is the stupidest show I've ever seen. There's no way this is ever going to make it. Well, it shows what I know about Hollywood, right? You just have that. You just have that eye for talent, Steve. I mean, that's it. That's it. It's a gift. You didn't, you probably didn't want to invest in cell phones either early on as well. Because that was just going to be a passing bad yeah, I'm, I'm waiting to make sure that and the internet, I'm still waiting to decide. My, my oldest daughter is just absolutely super 100% jealous of you because she is a massive, massive Grey's Anatomy fan. So, Steve, um, let's let's start talking clinically about some of the stuff here. You've got some really interesting things to share with us, in particular in the realm of genetics and how it's now affecting how we're you know, assessing risk for developing macular degeneration, but also to um, risk of severe vision loss from AMD. So tell us a little bit about the technology. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, as we know, uh, AMD is a leading cause of blindness in patients over the age of 60 in the United States. And right now they estimate about 11 million people have some level of AMD. And they say that's going to uh, double to 22 million by the year 2050 as the population continues to age. So tons of patients with AMD. So there's a company out there called, called Visible Genomics, and it's one of two companies right now that has a test, a genetic test for AMD, the other one being Arctic DX. And uh, Visible Genomics, they have two separate tests that you can do uh, in patients for, for uh, AMD. One's called the risk progression, and this would be a test, the AMD iGuard risk progression test is the exact name. This would be uh, to do on a patient that has early AMD, uh, you know, early Drews and RP changes, what have you. And it would, would predict 
their chance for getting advanced macular degeneration. That would be either geographic atrophy centrally or a choroidal neovascular membrane within the next two, five, 10, 20, or even up to 30 years. They also have another test called the lifetime uh, assessment test, the AMD iGuard lifetime assessment test. And this would tell a patient that doesn't yet have the signs of AMD, but perhaps has a strong family history of AMD, what their chance of developing um, advanced AMD, either GA or choroidal neovascular membrane over their lifetime. And we know from years of studying that, that AMD is in fact a genetic disease and your genes actually um, give you about 70% of, of your risk for developing macular degeneration. The other 30% is environmental. So if we sort of know where we start, right, what your, what your genetics are, it can help us predict what a patient's chance uh, along with their lifestyle and, and other environmental factors, it can help us predict what their chance for getting macular degeneration, advanced macular degeneration is. Let me play out a scenario then here. So let, let's, let me um, help us put this into clinical context. So sure. let's, for example, I, I, don't, I don't have a family history of macular degeneration, but I know that whenever we say that term to a patient, it is arguably one of the most concerning terms. I mean, whenever I bring it up into an exam room, you might as well have said cancer. I mean, right. it's just, it's almost like they've signed off the fact that they are going to lose vision at some point. So, so let's say, for example, I'm a patient, I'm in your chair. Um, as you can tell, I'm a healthy, young, studly, 46-year-old male. Um, but, but I'm concerned about my lifetime risk of developing AMD. Right. I run the test and it says, you have a high risk of right. vision loss from AMD. And I say, Steve, you tell me exactly what I need to do because I want to take my environmental risk and I want to drop it as far as I possibly can. So with the compendium of knowledge that we currently have, what are those recommendations? Right. I see. Yeah, for, a, for a healthy individual like me who doesn't have any signs of it, right. but now I know that I have this high genetic risk. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And like you say, I mean, you, you know, you can't change your genes. So we're stuck with those. So we have to talk about the other things. So I would counsel a patient such as yourself, you know, number one, the number one risk factor for getting macular degeneration as well as having it progress. The number one modifiable reason, I should say, is smoking. So number one, if you smoke, stop it immediately, right? Uh, some of the other things we talk about are uh, increased BMI. Being overweight has been shown in many studies to be probably the number two modifiable risk factor for getting AMD or having it progress. There's also things like UV protection, you know, diet, uh, exercise and things like that. And plenty of studies have shown that you know, a diet lower in red meat and higher in fish and chicken, as well as fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing can help reduce the risk of macular degeneration. So I would counsel a patient like that, you know, think about decreasing the amount of red meat you eat every week and substitute one or two meals of red, uh, of red meat you used to have with fish or chicken. That can make a meaningful difference. Also, the, the studies show that exercise, is, as much as walking a couple blocks a day, can even reduce your risk for macular degeneration. So it's not like you have to join a gym and you know, work out and pump iron. I mean, even something as simple as walking can make a big difference. Um, and then obviously UV protection, wearing sunglasses when you're outside, and things like that as well. So you know, these are things that, that maybe the patient thought about, but now that you've given them uh, you know, some, some active points to do, I think it really hammers the points home. 
Steve, do we know what vaping kind of does as a risk factor or non-risk factor? Like, what does what the literature say there? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. You know, when, when they talk about smoking, most of the studies are slightly older studies that are really talking about cigarette smoking, you know, and, and most of them look at cigarette smoking. I have not seen, although someone told me there was one, but I have been un unable to find it about vaping. The problem is, you know, vaping somewhat of a, of a newer thing, right? Within the last, I'm not really sure how many years. So I don't think we'll know the the, the bad effects of it for, for years to come, right? Because, you know, these are younger people that are, that are vaping. We're not going to know if they're going to get AMD for, for many, many years. But just from a reasonable, being a reasonable human being, it, it can't be good, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Steve, another question too, and again, so this is a question that we commonly get for the, from those individuals in particular that have a family history. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the computer screen? I mean, there's all this conversation about high energy visible light. Yeah. I mean, how much or how little should, in your opinion, and again, I know that there's a lot of information that's right. out there, but you're, in your professional opinion, how much or how little should we be concerned about? Yeah, that? I'm not totally blown away by the, the studies that look at blue light and macular degeneration. But, but again, you know, these are longitudinal studies you would have to do for a long period of time in order to really see these changes as patients get older. So I don't think, I think the jury's still out. We don't really know how damaging blue light and computer screens and, and iPhones and whatever will be in years to come. Um, I think that remains to be seen. That being said, I've got two teenage daughters that are both on their laptops or computers or phones 24 seven. And both of them have, uh, you know, both of them have that blue blocking or uh, you probably know more about it than I do, but whatever it's called, you know, in their glasses, because I figure, heck, it can't hurt for sure, right? Yep, yep. That's the interesting thing with it. And it's, it's even difficult to communicate with patients because everybody's coming and asking about it. And again, yeah. That's the caveat. It's not going to hurt you. And right. it may. We're not sure. The data is not out because of all the all the reasons that you say, but it may yeah. be beneficial. So, Steve, can you give us like maybe a case presentation where you've done the test on an individual who does either have earlier intermediate macular degeneration where now you're kind of seeing this individual and how maybe the information from the genetic test has helped you either stay the core yeah. or help modify the the follow-up path and how that looks different now for the, the patient yeah, sure so, so if i have a patient let, let's say i have a patient that you know has some signs of macular degeneration you know first i would explain to them there's a test out there that the genetic test and we, we simply take a, a swab of, of you know your your uh, saliva of your your gum uh your cheek rather and we send it in and it can let us know your chance of progressing to advanced disease within as i said two five ten twenty or up to thirty years um, then I would have the, I would send that out. I'd have the patient come back and go over the results for the patient. So let, let's imagine that patient falls into the moderate category, right? So, so basically it's going to break them down in, into, uh, you know, low risk, moderate risk and high risk. And, you know, obviously, you know, moderate has, it could be low, moderate, high, moderate, but basically those three. So if the patient's at moderate risk, you know, I'm going to counsel those pa that patient about certain things they can do to, to, to prevent it from getting worse. Like we discussed with the lifetime risk, you know, thinking about UV protection. If you smoke, don't smoke. If, if uh, you know, if you're overweight, think about losing weight, eat healthy, 
UV protection, that whole thing. I also might start vitamins a little bit earlier on that patient. You know, we know from the original ARED study, they don't recommend until you start those patients till they have intermediate or, or stage three AMD, but maybe the patient has stage two, but they have, they're at high risk or moderate risk. I, I might be a little more, uh, you know, progressive and start the vitamins a little bit sooner in that patient. You know, also my patients of moderate or especially high risk, I'm gonna see those patients more frequently. Because we know from, from studies looking at anti-VEGF treatment in patients who have converted from dry to wet disease, we know that patients, uh, that the earlier we get these patients treatment, the better off they do at the end of treatment. The, the better the vision entering treatment, the better the vision exiting treatment. So rather than seeing this patient perhaps you know, every you know, six months or a year, if they're high risk, I'm gonna say, hey, Mrs. Jones, you're at high risk. I really need to see you every three months because if you do get worse, I want to know about it as soon as humanly possible so I can get you for treatment because we know earlier treatment is going to benefit you in the long run. Steve, um, what are you having these patients monitor their vision with at home? Are you having um, them use Amsler grids or are you using some of these more advanced home monitoring systems or maybe a combination depending on the level of risk those patients have? Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a great question. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of the standard AMSA grid, you know, it's, it's been around since 1941. Uh, you know, it was discovered by a Swiss ophthalmologist in 1941. And I, I don't feel it's really good enough to, to check for early signs of metamorphopsia that might indicate conversion from dry to wet. And as I said, to me, that's one of the most important things we can do. Um, so there's newer things like the uh, 4C home, but my no tall vision that uses a prefer preferential hyperacuity perimetry in vernier acuity to look for um, changes in macular metamorphopsia earlier. And they've shown studies that they actually can, uh, can find patients who converted from dry to wet much sooner than just using a standard of care like the AMSLA grid. So I think in patients with intermediate or worse, this home monitoring uh, is a fantastic idea. And the other thing it has built, it has built in compliance that a regular AMSA grid doesn't have, right? And let's face it, we've all give patients AMSA grids and say, do you do it? And they, they put it in their refrigerator and they, they never do it, right? With the home monitoring, uh, you know, it, it goes into a reading center and the reading center will see if there's any changes uh, in, their, in their macular metamorphopsia. And if there are, they'll notify both the prescribing doctor, i.e. us, as well as the patient, hey, Mrs. Jones, you had a change in your findings, you need to call your doctor. But the, the company itself can't bill for the service unless the patients do it a minimum eight times a month. Right. So, so there's built in compliance there. So if the company sees the patient's not doing it, their, their advisors will call the patients and say, hey, Mrs. Jones, we notice you haven't done the test. Is there a problem going on? Can we explain to you again how to do it? Or is there another issue? So it's that compliance to me, as well as increased sensitivity, uh, is a home run as far as finding early, early patient conversion. That's great. I um, The Ambler grid, Steve, I mean, people come in and they, they say, yeah, I have it on my, I have it on my fridge. I said, oh, so do you put your reading glasses on when you do it? No, I just look at it straight up. Both eyes open, yeah. Yeah. both yeah. eyes open, just looking. I mean, it's just constantly yeah. educating people how to use it. So we actually, uh, we're, we're looking into the notes all vision just so that we can be providing patients with other things now as well too. 
This was uh, this was excellent, Steve. You're always a wealth of knowledge on posterior segment, in particular with AMD and really kind of the new contemporary options in, in treating and managing these patients. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for sharing all of this, including um, the interesting genetic testing that we have available here as well. You got it, my friend. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of the OI Show. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. Um, and again, keep listening because every single week we have a new guest, just like Dr. Ferrucci, that share with us the newest, latest innovations in eye care and optometry. Mm-hmm.